0: John O'Blee, let me tell
1: you something. It was unsurvivable, a catastrophic accident. I thought the building was going to fall over. My God, the roar. One had a machine gun
2: and... They were shooting through the doors. And about five minutes later, here comes a big front-end loader tractor with a whole bucket full of cases of dynamite.
1: If I want to make money, I'm going to, you know, show you my goods. As
0: long as the check clears, we bring them in, bring them out. You know what I mean? <laughs> Go to Home Depot. If kind of find something, just walk out, don't ask for help, be a man. i so many great Canadian athletes, contracts, in WWE that I knew that all Canadians were crazy. It's a
3: great day for a podcast. This is Oakley.
4: When it comes to human endeavors, I'm really, really uh, taken by these individuals who go uh, after monumental challenges and succeed. And Dave Proctor is one such individual. He's an ultra-marathon runner from Alberta, and he just set a new Canadian record crossing this country in less than 68 days. Let's get Dave in here on The Oakley Show, 640 Toronto. Dave, congratulations. Good to have you with us. How are you feeling today?
5: Oh, I'm feeling great, John. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here.
4: You finished up when? Yesterday?
5: Yeah, yesterday, I think it was 3.45 p.m. So uh, (laughs) I I guess I could say I've been sleeping and and, and eating copious amounts of food since, and and I'm I'm nowhere close to recovery yet.
4: (laughs) Well, yeah, that's going to take a while, I would think, 68 days on the road. Uh, How much would you cover in a typical day then?
5: Uh, I think I was averaging 106 kilometers every day. Um, that's, you know, 12 to 13 hours of, of running, uh, every day. I, and I didn't have a day off in between, uh, the, the day I started on May 15th in, in St. John's, Newfoundland and yesterday, uh, the 21st of, of July here in, in Victoria. So it 7, it's about 7,100 and I think 59 kilometers. And uh, a whole bunch of elevation with the Canadian Shield and the Canadian Rockies and things. I climbed over five Mount Everest and within that time period as well, too. Wow.
4: It's a good thing that you documented that because I'm just impressed. I've done the math roughly in my head, 106 kilometers a day. When a marathon is 42 kilometers, you're looking at Mm -hmm. about two and a half marathons a day with no quit, no rest, two-and-a-half marathons. Now, I know Terry Fox, back in the day, he was doing the Marathon of Hope, and that was a marathon a day, roughly. Uh, He didn't complete it because we know the story. Why did you do this, by the way?
5: You know, there is a a really great Canadian ultra-runner who who passed away back in, in 2016 by the name of Al Howie, And Al has... You know, I believe, you know, the most notorious running, ultra running record in, in, in Canada's history, which is the Trans Canadian Speed Record. He, he, in 1991, he ran across, um, across Canada from St. John's to Newfoundland, sorry, from St. John's to Victoria in 72 days and 10 hours. And over my running career, over my ultra running career, I've, I've, you know, had my eyes set on that for the longest time. I've, I've broken numerous Canadian running records, um, and but this was the big one. This was the the you know the record that I thought you know was maybe truly unbreakable. But I would have to really really string things together. And I put together a plan in 2018. I attempted it. I failed. And I came back in 2022. 2022. And uh, yeah, I succeeded. I, I I got across the country in 67 days, uh, 10 hours and 27 minutes. I think. <laughs> and so I truly believe, I think, I really think that I'm going to be an old man one day, 80, 90 years old, and I'm going to still still be alive holding this running record. I, I really don't know if there's anybody that can be able to, to really break it.
4: That's an interesting take. What was the hardest part then? Was it harder mentally or physically?
5: Oh, by far mentally. Um, I mean, physically, is it, it, it is exactly what you'd think it would be. It is a complete... Uh, blender. It's a complete torture all day, every day. You, you, you have 10,000 signals every day that you, you should stop, that this really hurts. But, you know, it, mentally, we do, our, our, our brains run the show. And if you feel like something's hard, it's hard. Um, if, you, if you're going to want to quit, you, you're going to quit. But if you really focus exactly on what your task is, and there's nothing else that's going to get in your way, then you you can end up having, you know, the most painful, horrific, difficult things uh, that can happen to you. But you are okay um, as long as, as 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 you know, you put your reward over top of of survival.
4: Hmm. Dave Proctor's with us again. Successful ultra marathon runner just crossed his country and set a record that he believes will uh, stand for a long, long time. He did it in less than 68 days, uh, 67 plus. Uh, now this is really, uh, a curiosity. I mean, you have to be so disciplined. Uh, so what was your daily regimen like? Uh, food intake, you know, uh, sleep pattern, anything else that I might not be accounting for. Tell me about it.
5: Yeah. So it was, it was, it was an extreme discipline practice. Um, I would never really veer, you know, want more than 1% off of my, routine every day because it was working. So I would wake up in the morning and I would eat the same bowl of oatmeal with the same peanut butter and the same maple syrup every single day. I would drink the same coffee um, in the morning every day, and I would get out on the road, and the first half an hour of every day while your body is kind of ripping and tearing itself apart and trying to get into a groove was excruciating. But, um, you know, I would run 20 kilometers, and then I would see my crew vehicle. They would drive up ahead, and it'll get new water bottles, new food, and then and then you run for another twenty kilometers and then and then another ten and another ten and another ten until you get done 105, hundred and five, hundred and seventy kilometers every day. And then you went into a, an extreme routine at night when it came to eating your whole whole body, body's weight worth of food. Um, you know, you're 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 kind of you're patching up little holes here and there in the boat with releasing this one certain tissue and mobilizing a certain joint to just know that you can get back out there again tomorrow so the so the injuries don't become too bad. And so it's, it's all routine and it's all sticking to it. Basically, the, the best way to put it is there are things in life that we want to do and then there are things in life that we have to do. And your feelings will always move you towards the things that you want to do. But um, what I needed to do out there was to do all the hard things and dedicate myself for 67 days. And I feel like I did that.
4: Mm-hmm. And you had to do this. Uh, it's, yeah. you know, similar of what they say, you know, uh, I can't remember who said it, but uh, of the ballet, uh, we want people who don't want to dance. They must dance. And uh, so, mm-hmm. no, it
5: absolutely, come, you know, and, and when I think about that, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's, I don't get paid millions of dollars to do this sport, in fact, you know, I, I don't get paid to do this sport. I had to take time away from my massage therapy practice in, in Calgary, Alberta. Um, you know, I simply did this because I wanted to do something truly impossibly hard. And I know that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of myself that I was able to, you know, dig myself into such a hole and then crawl out. Um, and so that in, in, unto itself was the reward. The reward was feeling wonderful. The wor- reward was feeling, you know, the, the extreme achievement. Um, you know, if there was a $10 million check at the very end of this, I think that would have cheapened the entire experience. The, exper- the experience itself was the suffering. And I think that there's nothing more human and beautiful than, than just that.
4: Wow. Uh, It's your privilege to revel in the psychic gratification that uh, very few, if any, people will actually ever uh, get to appreciate or uh, enjoy. You know, I'm kind of curious because as you did this, uh, I've heard that the hardest part of the journey, apart from, you know, the physicality and the the mental was the terrain here in Ontario uh, tell us about that and, and and what you recognized in the beauty of this country as you crossed it or if you had enough chance to sort of drink it all in
5: yeah you know everybody said at the very beginning um, and that including myself uh, you know the hardest terrain across Canada was going to be the Canadian Rockies and that's just simply not true I think the I um, think through northern Ontario you know the Canadian shield is just punishing and you know the steep pitches and how 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 many of them there, there are um it really really gets to you also being kind of in the middle of the run um is a really difficult time that you're so far into the run you've been running now for 20 30 days but yet you're still 30 or 40 days away from completion like you you are stiff and sore and battered and you you've you've dropped a lot of weight and and you're in a state of despair but you are nowhere close being done, and so you know, both mentally, physically, and the terrain in northern Ontario—that is by far the hardest part of the country. It uh, it was punishing. Uh, there was even times I was running for over five days straight, over five hundred kilometers, running north. I wasn't wasn't even running west. I had to get, I had to go north to go around this mass of Lake Superior uh, in order to go west. It, it's it's just that big of a country that. Uh, it's uh,
2: it, it, really, it really leaves you very, very exposed.
6: Mm.
4: And coincidentally, which is where the Marathon of Hope with Terry Fox ended as well, but mm. what impressed you the most about the country, though, as you crossed it? Uh,
5: yeah, simply, I, I thought it was going to be the beauty. I thought that the differences in terrain, you know, the 7,200 kilometers, I mean, differences between Atlantic Canada and then, you know, running... You know, running down the seaway and then running all throughout northern Ontario and the prairies and the Canadian Rockies. You know, it didn't even come close to touching how beautiful the people were. And one of the problems that I seem to think you know, with, with myself being an Albertan is that we've become very regional. And you tend to believe that other people from other parts of the country are very different and they have different, you know, ways of doing things. And, oh, you know, people from here aren't very polite and people from here are rude or people. And these were not my experiences at all. Um, the most lovely people I've ever met in my life were from every single province across the country. And, you know, I think our greatest resource as a country are, are, is, is seriously the people. And I just want to thank every Canadian for their kindness and generosity. Um opening their doors and and feeding me baked goods um, along the way. You know, Canadians are truly, truly wonderful people from from east to west.
4: What a remarkable story and account. Uh, and congratulations. As I said earlier, I mean, uh, there's this psychic gratification that you can revel in. You deserve it, and uh, you deserve a good rest and uh, many good meals subsequent to this accomplishment. It's a phenomenal thing. Uh, Dave Proctor, the ultra marathon runner from Alberta, just set a new Canadian record, less than 68 days. It was about 67 and a half days. He ran across this country, averaged a clip of 106 kilometers on a daily basis. Dave, great to talk to you. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, thanks so, so much for having me on your show. You got it. Wow. Uh, that is a remarkable story. I wanted to really introduce somebody to the show that i was just introduced to recently as well Uh, his youtube rants are priceless and his latest installment has to do with justin trudeau's 30 percent targeted reduction of fertilizer for farmers being a farmer himself obviously cuts close to home quick dick mcdick thanks for having me well, I appreciate you coming on because man, uh, I'm watching this thing with rap fascination. I'm saying to myself, this guy knows of what he speaks. I mean, it's impacting him directly and people, you know, uh, of his ilk because he's a farmer in Saskatchewan. So let's start with the, uh, latest installment. And this has to do Justin Trudeau, a 30% targeted reduction of fertilizer. Your thoughts on that and, and what it actually means.
7: Yeah. So, and like, like to be specific, it's, it's a it's a thirty percent reduction in fertilizer emissions, right? So, uh, which is one of the the misconceptions that I tried to address uh, in in the video there. I think the most dangerous thing of, of what we're looking at here is 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 we don't have a, an actual perfect way of quantifying this and and like i say in the videos we're we're, we're taking a, a, a basically a k factor and if anybody knows you know how different pumps and rotary things work is we're just taking a mathematical equation and estimates on overall emissions from fertilizer here in canada which is it, it's kind of an asinine number because we we can only estimate what it is in different regions, and different weather patterns are going to affect these emissions differently. Different farming practices are going to affect these emissions differently. But we, we don't look specifically at those numbers. All that we're looking at here when they when they make this proposal is just an estimate over everything. So that's why I did the video and try to go through the different steps that we already take here to mitigate emissions and to use the least amount of fertilizers that we possibly can to get the maximum yield out of our cropland. Uh, it's one of the most important things that we do and it's one of the biggest things that they have not taken into consideration when they're looking at this target and i think that's uh, that's a very dangerous way to look at things
4: yeah i just wanted to say you're right about that it's about emissions uh, of nitrous oxide specifically and uh, there's some folly in that equation too but before we get around to uh, you know i'll let you explain it in your own logic which i thought was wonderful on the youtube presentation <laughs> you know it's so uh, so well done but you know, you're already saying farmers are really uh, great stewards. They they're not going to you know be using fertilizer inefficiently. They're already cutting back for crying out loud uh, because it stands them in better stead—the least amount of inputs to ensure that you got the greatest output. Share some thoughts on that.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And like when you're looking anywhere between 1000 to $1,200 a ton for some of this fertilizer to do, it's not like we're just going to go and, and just completely use absolutely every little last bit we can get our hands on. And if any of it falls off the truck or we don't get it in the ground, well, we just don't care because it's cheap. We run farms as businesses. And this is a, a business decision is investment in equipment and technology in different ways that you can use the smallest amount of these inputs, right? Uh, it was especially frustrating here th- this year because we actually did a trial with a few different stabilizers in, in our liquid end that we put down and Here you are, you know, as as a farmer, and and farmers are gamblers, right? We're some of the biggest gamblers on the planet because you basically put your livelihood in every year, and then you hope you get it plus a little bit back out every year. It's not like just going on red at the roulette table, Mister Oakley. You know what I mean? Like you're going to be able to walk out of the casino and still buy a burger if you lose there. But um, we we use a lot of these technologies, and we spend a lot of time and invest a lot of money into equipment and this unstabilizer that we tried here this year we're just starting to see some of the results of it, of how that portion of the crop has grown versus the next one. This takes us years to to just keep fine-tuning and working towards better and better and better methods, and every farmer that I know does it. And when you see a a government like our our Trudeau government right now that are basically just gaslighting in front of everybody, saying, here's what we're going to do, we look at it uh, through a lens of being like, we are already implementing absolutely every resource that we have to try and use less and emit less and you want to come at us now to say you need to do 30% less than that how do you do 30% less of absolutely everything that you're already trying to do I, I don't understand that part of it
4: well that's just you know ivory tower uh kind of uh whatever you know just pronouncements because it's virtue signaling i guess you know that's become the common phrase for it but you know, just putting a number filling in a blank and then they sit back smugly and think uh, we're doing our part to reduce emissions again quick dick mcdick is with us on the line a saskatchewan farmer but his youtube presentations his rants against what is like government overreach, certainly in the case of the 30% reduction in emissions through fertilizer. He says they're already doing everything they can. You also point out, and I think this is a key point, it's going to affect everyone. Tell us how.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, I like to look at this. Uh, I was having a conversation with a few people here today, and I like to look at it as uh, put yourself as, uh, as, say, a single parent that's going down to the grocery store that's uh, that's looking to buy food. The single parents that are on a budget, do you do you go directly to the organic aisle where things are three times the price uh, that that you can buy just because it's a luxury that you can afford? A lot of Canadians right now dealing with inflation and a lot of other things that are costing us more, uh, you know, through our daily lives. We're doing everything we can to try and spend less. And when we reduce our fertilizer use, which is what this emissions reduction is, is eventually going to turn into, because like I said, we are already doing everything we can to reduce it. The only way to reduce it farther is to use less. When we start putting less fertilizer into our crops, that means we start growing less food. When we start growing less food, that means supply demand starts to kick in, and we have less of a supply and more of a demand, which is going to drive the price of it up. And I don't know if anybody's been to the grocery store lately, Mr. Oakley, but food prices are not exactly at the most best place that we've ever seen them in a long time reckless policies like this will be what drives that food price higher because you have less food that is available to your customers thus making it more expensive and that is a very big issue and then uh, we see where we wanted to try and head with the clean fuel standard as well on top of that right so these are these are some very big issues
4: well, you've quantified it. You put a dollar figure to it in terms of loss by 2030 if you've got a 30% reduction in emissions on fertilizer, uh, I guess, and a clean fuel standard as well. What is that loss then?
7: It's, it would be if we're looking at a 30% decrease in yield on a, like, say, on a 100 bushel crop of oats, for say, which is an easy number to use, that would bring that down to 70 bushels, you know? And it's just if you start taking thirty percent of our available food here in Canada off the shelves, like what what does that do to us? It 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 handicaps us. We're one of the one of the biggest agricultural producers on the planet. And uh, we're going to start handicapping that like we've done to our oil and gas industry and to everywhere else. And the the clean fuel standard, I feel, is a very important thing as well because it it, it mixes in with this. Because if you take that 30% reduction in fertilizer and we start growing 30% as much canola, which is one of the primary crops that we would use here on the prairies for for biofuels, which the clean fuel standard, which takes effect July 1st, 2023, is going to require specific amounts of ethanol and biodiesel to be burned and produced by fuel companies here in Canada. Canada. It it takes away more of that food that is available for our grocery stores and we are going to start burning it in the tanks of our vehicles now. So we are driving the price of fuel up by doing this. We're driving the price of groceries up by doing this. We're taking that limited available crop that we have on some of the most precious arable land that we have on planet Earth and uh, we're, we're going to start mandating that we burn it food grade fuel in our tanks.
4: Yeah, a lot of misaligned priorities from the government here in Justin Trudeau, the 30% targeted reduction in emissions uh, through the use of fertilizer. Uh, again, Quick Dick McDick is with a Saskatchewan farmer. He's articulated the grievances in his YouTube presentation. you got to check it out. But, you know, when you mention this, uh, that this is a misguided policy, uh, you've already sort of talked about how, you know, farmers are the most efficient when it comes to trying to uh, get better yield for the lowest amount of inputs, and therefore, you know, they're not willy-nilly just... Uh, splashing fertilizer all around you also talk about the four r's of stewardship i thought that was pretty impressive what do you mean by that
7: mm-hmm. yeah so it's uh it's, it's your right source of fertilizer because uh, fertilizer isn't just nitrogen we use a lot of different things we use sulfurs we use pot ashes we use a lot of we use a lot of different things here uh that that we use and and uh <laughs> somebody's trying to get in my truck here have a talk with me uh So we use different things. So the right source of fertilizer is what's important. And we, we produce some of that fertilizer here in Saskatchewan. It's potash kind of thing. So it's not always nitrogen that we're after. And you're always going to get different kinds of emissions and different quantities off of different fertilizers. Then we make sure that we use the right amount of said fertilizer, which we implement things like variable rate control on a lot of our seeding implements. Or maybe we'll come and broadcast some different, broadcast some different things. There's a wide variety of different things that we. Wide variety of different things that we use in those situations, and then we want to put it at the right place at the right time.
8: Did I lose you? Yeah.
7: Oh, sorry. No, i'll no, go sorry. ahead. Uh, it, it, it's a, it's a Saskatchewan cell service. Sorry, Mister Oakley. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we also want to put the right source, the right amount, the right place at the right time, and these are these are the four R's that are practiced. Clear across the agriculture community, uh, anybody that I talk to, this is what we've been doing for years. What these four R's do is they ensure that the that the limited amount of fertilizer that we do have to use is is being used to its maximum effectiveness. And it's just this is practiced in agronomy everywhere. It's it's not something new and it's something that everybody invests so much capital into their operation, making sure that they have the technology and equipment available to do this. Um, that's why we get so frustrated when we see these things coming down from the Trudeau government. They're, they're trying to get us to do things that we are already doing. And that's why I say they, they need to catch up with the times. We're, we're light years ahead of what they're trying to get us to do
4: yeah i 'm not sure they 've actually stepped uh west of the ontario manitoba border uh, for any length of time to understand but uh you 're right on this one and you cite in your youtube presentation that the uh, the science of agronomy uh very very sophisticated, and you guys are all plugged into this because i mean. As you say, uh, there's no margin for error. You're the biggest gamblers uh, existing on the planet. You talk, to about crop rotation and biodiversity, uh, using natural fertilizer whenever you can, which is actually beneficial in the grand sweep of things. I thought it was just such a compelling argument. We wanted to have you on and spell it all out, uh, and so you're teeing off from the government because they sit in their ivory towers. They make these rules and regs, uh, but they're not based in any kind of reality or practical application, and you as a farmer understand about all of this. Quick Dick McDick, uh, I would guide people to the YouTube presentation, because I was—I found it that impressive, actually. Uh, I guess they would just uh, log you in, Quick Dick McDick, and they would find it there?
7: So that's how you find it. Yeah, it's Quick Dick McDick on YouTube. Uh, you can also, I'm on uh, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram is QD McDick. Uh, there's all kinds of things there. I do, you know, I, I do a lot of different types of uploads. I did another one similar to this on called Beefing Around, just upcycling of cattle. We have a world that's trying to cancel uh cattle and, and beef production, and uh, as I highlighted in this fertilizer video, plus another one that I do there. Uh, they're just such an important part of, of our rotation and how we work together with our environment to, to make things work here. Uh, anybody that doesn't understand it, we're we're not here trying to hurt anything. We're we're actually here trying to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. So.
4: Mm. that's wonderful all the social that you're doing i'm wondering when you have time for farming but uh, <laughs> be that as it may it's it's good to talk to you we'll do it down the road again i'm sure uh i appreciate your time this afternoon all the best out there in the prairie
7: thank you so much for having me mr oakley appreciate it you got a
4: quick dick mcdick good old boy from saskatchewan a farmer who really understands the business and uh i think he can take somebody like justin trudeau to school on this whole matter of how farms are uh, efficiently run as is. And so a 30% in the reduction of emissions through fertilizer is, well, impractical to say the least. Vince McMahon, you know, he resigned as a consequence of, uh, well, allegations that were surfacing in the media, as well as being investigated by federal prosecutors and the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's alleged had uh, numerous affairs and in that case also paid out uh, payments totaling $14.6 million between 2006 through 2022. Joining us on the line to sort of unpack this one is Stephen P. New. He's a lawyer with New Taylor and Associates in West Virginia, wrestling fan and a shareholder in the WWE.
0: It's always great to be with my friends to the north. Thank you for having me on. It's so interesting the way that this has happened because at first it was one allegation with one paralegal who was alleged to have had an affair with McMahon, and there was $3 million in one NDA. And I was like, well, you know, if it wasn't company money and it was reported and all of this, everything's okay. And it's just seemed like for the past month it's been drip after drip after drip of revelation. Uh, I have my own theories about where I believe that information is coming from. I think it's probably from one of the uh, prosecutorial sources with the Securities Exchange Commission because uh, that's the real problem now. It's not probably what happened and whether it was consensual or, uh, you know, these parties entering into a legal settlement uh, contained by a non-disclosure agreement. Now you've got that. WWE as a corporation used this money in these settlements, never explained it to the shareholders of WWE on the mandatory 10K SEC filings, and now there's going to be a big investigation uh, about that, what was reported, if anything, to the uh, the minority shareholders who may also now have derivative claims against majority shareholders and the board of wwe so this is about to be a wild ride
4: well yeah and that's what you're saying uh as i get it anyway they uh are refiling uh, i guess these security filings that wwe came out with they've had to restate from 2019 2021 and the first quarter of 2022 right
0: yes that's correct they're filing amended sec filings 10ks uh that go back and detail those payments which begs a lot of questions about why were those disclosures not made to the shareholders of WWE during those years? Uh, w- w- was that being done to try to better WWE's position in a p- potential acquisition by Fox or NBC Universal or Disney even or someone like that? So. There's going to be a lot that has to come out with this about the whys of why WWE on a quarterly basis was not making these disclosures to all the parties that the law says those disclosures have to go to, John. Well,
4: isn't that fraud?
0: Uh, It is. It can be considered uh, fraud, uh, among other things. I mean, there are particular uh, breaches of Fiduciary duties. I mean, all of the people, the attorneys, the accountants who are responsible for filing those 10Ks, owe fiduciary duties to every shareholder uh, to make sure that that those uh, public disclosures are accurate. They're being filed with the United States government, the SEC, uh, Securities Exchange Commission, uh, and so every shareholder. If you've got just one share of WWE stock. You are entitled to accurate 10K filings, uh, and those who don't do that breach their fiduciary duties to you.
4: Yeah, it's a publicly traded company, so uh, I get it. McMahon would have been better served if he had this kind of dalliance, or several dalliances as now seems to be surfacing. Uh, He could have paid out of pocket. I mean, the man is just uh, awash in money, is he not? He should have just dipped into his own personal savings account.
0: Exactly. Do it off the clock, away from the headquarters, away from the arenas. Uh, I mean, that's the man's personal life, you know, and that's between him and his wife and the creator or whoever, you know, at that point. uh, But to involve, uh, you know, potentially, uh, you know, with the paralegal, at least it's at the office. Uh, So there's a whole web of things going on there uh, that could have been handled uh, a lot more wisely and not expose the corporation.
4: Yeah. Again, we're talking to Stephen P. New. He's a lawyer with New Taylor & Associates in West Virginia. He's a wrestling fan, shareholder in the WWE. And uh, Vince McMahon, you know, he of the World Wrestling Entertainment, he's the face of the, the project uh, and has been since he bought it from his father back in '82 turned it into a multi-billion dollar corporation. I think it does annual revenues of about a billion dollars, but uh, now uh, he stepped down on Friday because there's a serious investigation into uh, using company monies to pay out in non-disclosure agreements. Would insurance cover this? I mean, in the case of Vince McMahon, uh, corporate insurance, because Hockey Canada, I mean, these were for uninsured liabilities. They had a slush fund.
0: In in United States, it would depend on how the allegations are couched. And so um, sometimes as lawyers, we have to thread the needle of the way that we say certain things, particularly when it comes to um, sexual harassment, sexual assault, uh, rape, you know, all of those things are called different things. There are different elements of intent and, um, Some of those things are covered by insurance. Other times, if it's an intentional act or a criminal act, it won't be covered by insurance, for instance.
4: I'm guessing this is sort of mop up on aisle five for the WWE in part. I mean, McMahon stepping down as well. It's been said that, you know, as the principal shareholder, uh, he is somebody who's standing bet down because they want to sell the operation or perhaps uh, see it taken over by, you mentioned, Fox, NBC, potentially. Uh, is this to clear the decks?
0: Uh, it very well may be. At a minimum, I think it's a reset. Hmm. At a minimum, I think it's a, a reset because McMahon, in addition to being the chairman of the board, vast majority shareholder, was also the head of creative. If he didn't like what a guy or a gal did in the ring, or how they did it, or how they spoke, or their appearance, what they wear, uh, that all ran through one man, and it has for forty years, uh, and so that's the control uh, that Vince McMahon had uh, for so long. So it's it's more than just clean up on uh, aisle five, as you said. Uh, you know, it, it's a whole new way of this very large multimedia global publicly traded corporation has to go about doing business
4: interesting well we'll see what the fallout is Uh, you know I guess summer slam goes on uh, notwithstanding all the legalities Stephen New lawyer with New Taylor and Associates in West Virginia wrestling fan and shareholder in the WWE I really appreciate your time again Stephen thanks for it
0: Uh, always always take care Uh, we'll talk real soon you got it Max's
4: Kansas City in Lower Manhattan back in the 70s, and uh, it was quite a scene there as a matter of course. A lot of people ascribe the birth of punk music to Max's Kansas City well before CBGB uh, was on the map for the same, but uh, there's a story out now that sort of sets the record straight and puts it all into proper context or perspective. It's a new documentary called Nightclubbing, the birth of punk rock in New York City, and one of its principals, Mike Schnapp, has joined us here on the line on The Oakley Show to spell it all out, Mike, good to have you on. Uh, by the way, you're in your car right now, so uh, that's actually uh, even more uh, you know, impressive that you're joining us while you're driving. The director of nightclubbing, by the way, Danny Garcia, sitting next to him, uh, who is also one of the principals with the film.
6: Mike, I appreciate you joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. My pleasure. And uh, So where, where are we being broadcast right now? You guys are up in Toronto? We are in Toronto, yeah. All right. We love Toronto, man. (laughs) Toronto rocks. Yes. (laughs) And we have a screening. We have a screening of the film coming up in Toronto on August 15th at the Paradise Theater. So all you, you punk rock maniacs, people who've been there, people who want to know about it, come down to the screening amen to that listen i I gotta ask because you're
4: saying punk rock and the title is nightclubbing the birth of punk rock in new york city but your max's kansas city was about more than punk rock per se wasn't it absolutely
6: it was about a lot of things it started out as a restaurant and then uh, the restaurant was located across the street from where andy warhol and his factory was So Andy Warhol and all his superstars and artists and freaks um, and interesting people and movie stars used to show up there at late night after creating and they would eat and they would hang out in the famous back room of Max's Kansas City. And then at some point, well, the artists and the creative people were there, so the 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 musicians started showing up, and then it became an amalgamation of artists and and movie stars and music people, and it just, you know, kind of snowballed from there. Um, The Velvet Underground got brought in by Danny Fields, who was a Warhol person, and... They brought in uh, the Velvet Underground to play a whole summer in 1970. They brought in Alice Cooper on September 8th, 1970, to play with the MC5. The New York Dolls and uh, Iggy and the Stooges started playing there around that time. And then the New York Dolls, who you just played, followed suit. And then it became that place where those people started the ball rolling.
4: Well, and the ball was rolling uh, well before CBGB, as I said in the intro, Uh, so this is why you know a lot of times people say CBGB was where punk rock started, but you're saying Max's Kansas City predated that fairly
6: significantly, didn't it? Yes, and in the words of Peter Crowley, who booked a lot of the talent in the later years, he goes, if you date punk rock to the Velvet on the Ground, the New York Dolls, the Stooges, Suicide, Alice Cooper, then... Then Max's Kansas City was there well before CBGB's. CBGB's opened up in late 73, early 74. By then, Max's was already hosting all those bands. Um, And this is not to downplay the importance of CBGB's. We have much respect. But if you look at the timeline, that's where it sort of started. And then it became like both of those clubs had all the bands. Now, Mike, was it sort of an accident here? You're talking about
4: a cross-pollination of uh, pop culture. I mean, artists. Oh. You had uh, some of the glitterati at the time. Jane Fonda, Warren Beatty, Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, Al Pacino would all hang out there. Warhol. You mentioned the influence of Warhol and his factory across the street. Uh, so was it just a happy accident then that this all came together, the confluence of factors?
6: Uh, You know, I gotta think that most everything great is a happy accident, and then people look back and they take credit. Um, but yeah, it kind of was a happy, I I like that term, happy accident. Just things start happening and popping, and people get creative, and, uh, you know, all these bands went and they saw the Velvet Underground, they saw the New York Dolls, and they saw, you know, the Stooges and Alice Cooper, and they go, Wow, we could do that. You know, the the famous story of all four Ramones separately went to see the Stooges play in 1969 at the Queens Fairgrounds. And um, they all saw that and said, oh, my gosh, that is that's the real deal. We could do that. And they formed the Ramones, you know, a couple of years later. Um, but you know, it's all about being influenced and seeing something. And there's the, sick, there's the famous thing about the Sex Pistols show in in Manchester in 1976. Forty three people went to the show. Thirty nine of them started bands or magazines or TV shows. So you show up somewhere, you're influenced, and you do something. And next thing you know, you're you're the, you know you're what's happening. No, well, that's coming. it. We're what's happening.
4: Yeah. That's where Bowie first met Iggy Pop. Alice Cooper signed his first contract there. Uh, Aerosmith Springsteen signed to Columbia Records as well. Debbie Harry, uh, was a waitress there. Was there ever a danger that it would get corporate? I mean, because you got people signing contracts. Clive Davis is, uh, hanging out there. How did they sort of, uh, resist going corporate and just, uh, maintaining the integrity of the scene?
6: Well, I think at some point, you know, it's corporate a little bit because those people showed up with credit cards and they paid for food <laughs> and drink. But, but at the same time, well, you know, look at Iggy Pop. Look at the Stooges. I mean, that's as out there as ever. So at some point, it's also the melding the happy accident of, you know, corporate guys sitting there and Iggy jumps on his lap. Next thing you know, they're in bed together, you know? So... <laughs> Um, and you need both. You know, you need the you know, music business. It's the music, but you do need some business. But ultimately, you can't... Uh, the Stooges, you know. Alice Cooper is going be, to be... You know, the New York Dolls are just going to be a freak show. Everyone, this... Uh, but anyway... Yeah, I'm losing you here, Mike. Uh,
4: let me just wrap oh, on that note. It. I mean, you've, you you tell us it's coming to town for a screening August 15th at the Paradise Theatre. That's uh, really the bottom line that people need to know about nightclubbing. Again, that's the title of the movie, the full title, The Birth of Punk Rock in New York City. And we've just scratched the surface here. Uh, so many legendary accounts that you want to take in the doc. Uh, I appreciate it, Mike. And also uh, he is sitting in the car with Danny Garcia, who is also a principal. Well, let me put Danny on
6: for one second. We need his short foreign accent hold on okay Hello there.
4: <laughs> Danny congrats on the film I hear good things about it as a matter of fact in Spain didn't you win the judges special mention award yeah thank you yeah it's a, it's a fun it's a fun movie you know well it captures uh, a,
3: almost yeah
4: a time that's sort of uh, integral to a lot of our upbringings you know with uh, these influences and uh, well it's cultural certainly and uh, it was a watershed a watershed period, certainly on this side of North America. And then you had the, the counterpoint in the U.K. Uh, all coming together, melding together into something that was beautiful. Got to let you guys go, uh, Mike. And uh, Danny will uh, again advise people. It's at the Paradise Theater here in town on the 15th of August. Make note. The matter of Tamara Litch. This is one of the... Freedom Convoy Principles, and uh, she's been held in jail for 48 days and uh, from time to time granted bail and uh, with her surety in the court. And then, of course, the bail is revoked for perceived uh, transgressions of her conditions. It's kind of become a a weird story that almost seems like it's overkill on the part of the Crown, but uh, that's just my layperson's interpretation of things. Let's get a legal expert in here. Joseph Neuberger has joined us with Neuberger and Partners Criminal Lawyers. He's also Global News' legal expert and host of the podcast Not On Record. Joseph, always a pleasure. Good afternoon.
2: Great to be on the show, John. Thank you.
4: What's the latest? Now, there was a bail hearing. I didn't follow up, but uh, I was just following this till yesterday. Uh, did she get bail, by the way?
2: No, she was still before. So she, she was denied bail. So what happened was she was released originally after some time in custody on bail and she was uh, breached now, I guess uh, about a month and a half or two months ago. So she was found to have breached her bail by uh, attending a gala and having an exchange with one of the co-accused who was also a, an organizer of the, um, uh, of the truck uh, rally, the and freedom convoy, based, the freedom convoy. And based upon, those two breaches, so really one was a handshake and a picture, and the other one's attending the gala and being, I guess, in some contact. She was then held on a breach charge. She was charged with breaching her bail. She has been in custody. She was denied bail by a justice of the peace at a bail hearing for that. Now she's before a judge in the Superior Court of Justice, uh, basically appealing, if I can put it that way, the denial of bail. So she's been in custody 48 days, And she is still in the midst of the bail review right now with the judge, and they're fighting it out where the Crown still wants to ask her more questions and ask the sureties more questions.
4: You mentioned the 48 days in custody at the Ottawa Carleton Detention Center, and her lawyer, Lawrence Greenspawn, says she's already spent more time in pretrial custody as a presumptively innocent person than she would have if she served, uh, if she were convicted and sentenced to trial. I mean, so is this normal then?
2: No, and I'm glad you brought this up, because I actually got lambasted on Twitter myself when I I had said something that I thought this was a lot of overreach on the part of the government with respect to the denial bail. I I thought it was too much. There's no doubt that this was a serious situation, and there's differing opinions as to the messaging and who was involved and and what they were doing and saying. But nevertheless, she's charged with uh, mischief. She's charged with counseling to uh, commit mischief. And intimidation; those are the offenses. And uh, she has been in custody now as a person who enjoys the presumption of innocence. And she has been in custody for a long period of time, where one could imagine, in circumstances like this, she would have already served a jail sentence, even if she went to trial and was convicted, or if she had pled guilty. She may get a—you know—it's conceivable, depending upon how the facts play out at a trial, that she could, if convicted, would get a longer sentence. But he was making the point that when it comes to a mischief charge and an intimidation charge, the sentences are not that significant. The mischief is punishable up to two years in jail, no more. So it is a lot of time in custody for these types of offenses, which are not akin to what we normally see, where there is actual violence, a gun, a knife or other things involved.
4: Again, with Joe Newberger with Newberger and Pardons Criminal Lawyers, just talking about Tamara Litch, who was one of the principals behind the Freedom Convoy. And she was arrested initially uh, back, I guess, around, uh, what was it, uh, March, I think, uh, or yep. April. Anyway, uh, long story short, uh, she was denied bail. And then uh, this has been a whole rigmarole going before a series of judges. To this point, they say five different judges to argue for her release during the pretrial phase. And she was found to be in breach of her bail. Uh, the bail condition set down on some say her lawyer, certainly, uh, that you know were not really serious grounds for revoking the bail. She was just seen in a picture and shaking hands with one of the Freedom Convoy organizers, not like they were planning to, you know, uh, do Freedom Convoy 2.0. But that being said, uh, <laughs> And it's an awkward question to you, Joe, because I know you're in the legal profession. But do you think that some of this is politically motivated by some of the people yeah. making decisions on our bail?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, John. I think you're right. Yeah, I think there's clearly the fight on behalf of the, the, the Crown, um, although they are independent of government. But there has to be political undertones to this. And I realize that people may see this in a way that this was seditious behavior, anti-government. It's you know, promoting chaos. Etc. but we got to take a step back and relax. You know, no, nobody's stormed parliament. We're still, all our institutions are in good standing and order. And I just think there's a little bit of politics playing behind here. And with all due respect, I'm not a politician, but the hard line and overreach by government with respect to this breach and bail, I think just simply plays into the hand of Ms. Litch and her, her fan base and others who are saying that we're being denied liberty by our government you know there is this undertone that we have across canada it's playing out right now and this type of overreach by government and i think a heavy-handed approach just plays into that narrative when that's not really who we are as a canadian society i i think there's a political undertone to it and i think it's very unfortunate in these circumstances
4: wow interesting take that uh, she might actually cite this as uh, a reason for wanting to you know be a part of a a freedom movement, as it was, uh, you know, yeah. sort of loosely constructed. You know, the other, the idea that they brought in some of these judges from outside jurisdictions to rule on the bail review. Why would that be?
2: Well, that another good question. So, uh, because this all happened in Ottawa and she's arrested in Ottawa, one might imagine that if you're doing an, a a bail review or, like I said, an appeal of it to a superior court judge, by having a local judge may have a, a perception of bias because they're within the community for which there is all this going on. So you want to bring a judge from an outside jurisdiction that doesn't have that same type of, you know, baggage, if I can put it that way. So it doesn't mean that a judge who normally resides in Ottawa and sits in Ottawa would be biased in any way, shape or form. But justice must not only be done, but it must see to be done. So by bringing in a judge from another jurisdiction, I think is a good move. It's certainly not harmful to her situation. I think it's beneficial.
4: All right. Now, uh, in the case of the bail hearing, some of these were before a justice of the peace, were
2: they not? Correct. So on first instance, when you're arrested, you're held for bail, and normally you appear before a justice of the peace. And that's what happened uh, in this case. When she was charged with the breach offenses, she came before a justice of the peace. And now they're appealing that to a judge to see if there was an error made by that justice of the peace.
4: Right. The other thing I was curious about is uh, her surety uh, can't be identified or there's a ban on publication. Why would that be?
2: Well, you know, right now I think it's to protect the integrity of the process because there's so much playing out in social media and in media uh, that, you know, protecting the identity of a person who wants to present as a surety frankly I think makes the process less tainted. Uh, can protect the individual against other untow- untoward uh, communications. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on. I don't think the identity to the public at the proposed surety right now really is of m- any moment. Certainly the Crown knows who it is, the judge knows who it is, and they have plenty of background information. But I think because of how it's playing out in the media, a uh, publication ban on that name right now just protects the integrity of the process.
4: Lastly, you know, the uh, bail conditions that are set. Now, she was... Alleged to have breached two of the conditions of her release, she accepted an invitation to a gala that was hosted by the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Uh, That's the outfit out of Calgary. And then another where she appeared in a social media post as the, quote, brand ambassador, end quote, for a trucker-themed freedom pendant. Can you see conditions that would uh, deny her even those kinds of sort of tenuous links to her circle of friends or associates?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, in circumstances where you're supposed to be not associated with other people who are in line with the freedom um, convoy and with that type of um, promotion, sort of, of of this movement, you know, that's why you had that restriction. But again, you know, you're attending a gala by the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Like, I'm ha- that's why I had a problem with her being denied bail and being charged in the first place. Because it's like that's something that, you know, it's not like she's attending a rally for those who want to overthrow government or commit, you know, murder. You know, it's, it's the Constitutional Freedoms Conference. So I just see it as overreaching. And then the whole thing about the pendant, yeah, that probably is a breach in and of itself because it's promoting that type of activity that for now she's banned from doing. But we're talking about really low hanging fruit here, John. Like if you got to breach somebody on this, it's very minor. She should have gotten a release right off the bat in
4: my opinion mm-hmm. this is an interesting one uh... and a lot of people to a lot of people i guess uh... she's being heroic in the sense that uh, she's also a martyr for their cause and uh... this whole rigmarole with bail denied and revoked and uh... so on and so forth is just adding luster to that claim uh, but it's interesting after forty eight days and counting we'll see where this one goes because as the lawyers are pointing out you know somebody who would be convicted uh, and would already have served this time. She's still uh, caught up in the mob, the justice system. I appreciate you giving us your interpretation. Uh, Joseph certainly clears things up. Uh, we'll watch with interest where this one is going. What would your spidey sense tell you, that this time around she gets bail?
2: I do. I, I think at the end of the day, Justice Goodman will take a good hard look at it, listen to all the positions, and then give her a bail. It'll be an exceptionally strict release, but I think she's going to get a bail.
4: I I would agree with that assessment. Joe Newberger with <laughs> Newberger and Partners Criminal Lawyers, Global News Legal Expert, host of the podcast Not On Record. Woman at a rooming house on Sherburne Street in downtown Toronto near Dundas actually had uh well, a neighbor die and then the decomposition took place and was so prolonged that the funky smell just permeated the building, and she tried to get the landlord to address it. I mean, it was the landlord, I guess, who finally found the body, and, uh, you know, the people that carted it off, uh, they're not left behind to clean things up. It's really upon the landlord to do that, and he's been reluctant to, and she still has to stay with a funky smell. And I'm just wondering about that that scenario, uh, when somebody passes, you know, and it's unfortunate, uh, but it does happen. You got to call in certain experts and we have in this regard we've called in christian kaju president of crime and trauma scene cleaners a forensic cleaning company in toronto uh so i need to know in this case that i cited it's i guess uh, on your website you've got a special category unattended death cleanup Uh, how do you go about something like that
3: correct well essentially when someone passes the um, depending on the situation the circumstances of course There are different types of biohazards in these particular environments. If, in fact, forensics uh, has been called or dispatched, uh, depending on the circumstances, now you also have chemical contamination mixed with biohazardous infectious materials. Now, um, also with the usage and how prevalent carfentanil is these days, which is one of, uh, it's a serious pandemic right now. It has changed the dynamics, how we, how we do a lot of, or how we proceed with the decontamination of these types of environments. Uh, what happens often at times in these environments, again, depending on the different stages of putrefaction, depending on the different stages of uh, the different mortis, uh, there are different types of scenarios. So, for example, Different types of gases are released. Uh, The putrefaction gas, which emanates from the human body during the stages, consists of three particular gases. uh, Hydrogen sulfide, sulfur dioxide, and ammonia. Now, these three gases, when they're released, it's a sticky molecular substance that becomes airborne. It attaches itself to every single thing in this environment. Now, if there's an air handling system, which has also taken this gas, it will recirculate the gas throughout the environment. Or if other rooms in a home, whether it's, uh, for example, a a rental home, a rooming house, whichever the case may be, if they share the same air handling system, this is something which needs to be taken into consideration. Uh, So everything in that environment, as a result of putrefaction gases, possibly forensic chemicals, car fentanyl or any of the associated analogs creates an absolute nightmare for anyone that is going to reoccupy this environment but before anyone has to re- and before anyone reoccupies the environment for living purposes a decontamination must take place of all items within the environment including the structure the ceilings walls floors etc cetera, etc cetera, in order to neutralize any potential threat that may or may not be an immediate threat to public health to human life or animal life
4: right so just a gallon jar of mr. clean is not going to do it
3: absolutely not and there's there's just so many overlooked issues from uh, as I mentioned from different types of biohazards to chemical hazards which pose sometimes immediate threat and immediate risk to people hmm. and in this particular scenario um, and this happens a lot and I'm not you know I certainly can't sit here and tell you that um, the dynamics or the politics behind it, but I was actually contacted by a um, an individual by the name of Lindsay Tolk from uh, Neighbourhood Legal Services. She reached out to me as she was representing one of the tenants. And this uh, young lady had mentioned to me, asked for my assistance uh, with respect to what my thoughts were uh, with, in regards to different hazards and different risks that other tenants in this ruling house may or may not be exposed to. So once I was contacted, I've been communicating with this uh, this young lady, and uh, she's um, she's a lawyer, and she's representing the tenant. And uh, I've been giving her as much information as I possibly can, with what the government says, with what the Ontario Ministry of Environment, and Climate Change says, the Ministry of Labor, et cetera, et cetera. Because there's a whole plethora, as well as public health, there's a whole plethora of matters which need to be taken into consideration. Unfortunately, here in the province of Ontario. We don't have the same, let me digress for a second. The state of California has got to be one of the most uh, up-to-date environments and up-to-date geographic areas where if something like this happens, public health, if somebody dies in a home, Mm. public health in the state of California will show up, they'll put a big sign, do not enter biohazard until this environment is properly decontaminated. If Ontario Public Health would stand up and do something similar, we certainly wouldn't have these situations because before a house is sold or before an area of room or an apartment is re-rented, certain procedures should be taken into consideration and the environment should, in fact, be treated. Because if an individual or individuals reoccupy the environment and become sick, now it's an issue of liability to the property owner.
4: Hmm. Now, Christian, uh, is decomposition then the key here? I mean, if somebody passes, but immediately, uh, you know, there's obviously uh a whole process by which you know the coroner comes in or the doctor and certifies a death and this and that and the other but does that even require you know all of these protocols that you're citing
3: Sure, absolutely. Uh, In fact, when the coroner or when the body removal company or when the forensics department, when they enter these environments, they wear their uh, what's often known as a bunny suit, which is a white biohazardous suit with a hood and built in booties. They wear their protective equipment and their personal protective equipment, for that matter, in order to prevent any Cross contamination that may that might be they may come in contact with. Once the body is removed, of course, what remains is where we come in and take care of this particular situation, neutralize any potential threat, and then make it safe and inhabitable uh, for anyone who'd like to reoccupy these environments.
4: Christian Cajou is with us. Uh, Christian is the president of Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners. That's a forensic cleaning company here in Toronto. We were just talking about when somebody dies and decomposes in a unit, uh, what do you do? There's a story of a woman on Sherburn at a rooming house, and her landlord's not taking care of this. And so Christian was called in. Christian, a couple of quick questions here because my time is tight. Uh, is it possible to ever get rid of that smell? I mean, can you clean up so that it's a pristine condition ever again? Are there places that you just have to write off?
3: Yes, we can. Unequivocally, yes, we can. It's uh, it's an extremely difficult process, and if anyone should ever say otherwise, then they're, they're not being truthful. It's, uh, it can be done. It's, there are stages, there are protocols, there are different, uh, procedures through thermal treatment to chemical treatment to UVC light. There are, are in fact, methods to treat. Every surface and every scenario and situation is unique entirely unto itself. But yes, it can be properly removed. And permanently, for
4: that matter. Well, I've got to ask, finally, because I know it's another category you deal with, and that's crystal meth or ecstasy chemical labs, this kind of thing. I mean, that's also biohazardous. I'm guessing you go in with hazmat suits. And uh, is that equally difficult to a decomposing body or even more so?
3: Well... it, it, it all depends it, it has its this is more of a chemical decontamination versus a biological uh, there's five facets chemical biological radioactive nuclear and explosive and what we deal with is chemical and biological mm.
4: yeah I was gonna say uh, if you're dealing with nuclear uh, boy that's a pay grade that's uh, really <laughs> taking this <laughs> to another uh part of the ionosphere, I guess, of the stratosphere. But listen, it's good to know, and uh, you've got your site listed. It's rather comprehensive in terms of cleaning up after there's a decomposing body that's uh, really become, let's say, uh, a present uh, problem for some of the existing tenants there. Uh, That needs to be addressed. Christian Kiju is one who does so, the president of Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners. It It was a coding error, uh, apparently, according to the head of Rogers, who faced his own grilling yesterday by Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, the Liberal MP for Beaches East York, the committee that's investigating the outage and uh, the concentration, I guess, of ownership when it comes to the big telcos. Uh, I want to find out what is really at the heart of these hearings and what they hope to accomplish. Joining me on the line right now is Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, the Liberal MP for Beaches East York, also sitting on the Standing Committee on Industry, Science and Technology. Nathaniel, always a pleasure to have you here on The Oakley Show. Good afternoon.
1: Yeah, good afternoon. Thanks for having me.
4: So two days of hearing, what do you hope to accomplish during these hearings?
1: Well, one, I think just basic accountability, that there hadn't been a proper explanation until the CRDC and our committee started asking questions. The CEOs would not have, the CEO and and executives at Rogers would not have had to attend in any public forum to answer tough questions, but for the committee hearings. And then the second goal, I think, out of a committee hearing like this is to ensure that we push for a better path forward, that we, that we identify not only the consolidation challenges as it relates to affordability as we have in the past, but that these consolidation challenges and, and the excessive concentration and, and these incredibly profitable oligopolies also pose resiliency challenges and that we, we need to maintain pressure on the government and all political parties, frankly, to, to deliver uh, better competition in this country.
4: Well, competition, is that at the heart of it? I know uh, yesterday it was said, uh, and I'm going on (laughs) faith, that this was an accurate report. It got testy between you and the head, the CEO of Rogers. (laughs) Tell us about that. I mean, uh, how did did he get his dander up when you went after him?
1: (laughs) Well, honestly, it was initially just me pointing out the fact that if I'm a frustrated customer with Rogers, Out of a situation like this where there wasn't clear communication and obviously an essential service like this. First, I tried to get them to identify it as an essential service. That was basically around that question. But, but then when I just said, I'm a frustrated Rogers customer, where do I go? And he said, well, you know, you've got alternatives and choice in this
6: marketplace. And I,
1: I had to laugh and I intervened to say, wait, wait, you're, you're seriously telling us that you think there's, alternative and choice and he said yes very much so <laughs> i just said are you <laughs> and you're saying that with a straight face mm-hmm. uh and uh I, I don't you know he's he, he earned his 27 million dollars maybe <laughs> although, it was, <laughs> although it was incredibly rehearsed so i uh that that, that to me is the most important thing what you, what you want in a situation like that is someone to come contrite, explain fully what happened but also be, be a little bit more serious and, and don't have us on about competition and choice in, in, in this marketplace
4: That is really uh, something that sticks in a lot of people's craws, because we know we're being held over a barrel, figuratively speaking, here, with the highest wireless rates in the G7 or the G20, whatever it might be in the free world. Uh, And so... How do we then ensure that there could be more competition and it could be, uh, you know, the smaller players brought up to scale? I know a while back Verizon had sort of dipped their toe in the water thinking of coming into Canada, and that was shot down saying, well, they'll only uh, service urban areas. It won't blanket the country as Rogers and TELUS and Bell do. Uh, so how do we square that circle, Nathaniel?
1: Uh, a number of different ways, and and we have to be creative about this. But the, but the first way is we need to protect the, the, the very limited competition we do have. And so I point blank asked the Roger CEO of this meant they the end of the Rogers and Shaw merger he, he didn't think it was but but I certainly hope that it is because we can't have even more concentration and beyond that we need to make sure that we have structural separation in this country so that uh, more companies can compete on the networks that do exist and w- we should look to what Australia's done for example where they they've built out in a serious way into rural areas and, and other areas where with with a public facing infrastructure that then private companies can compete on, uh, so that would that would be I think a very welcome change in this country. And when you point to Verizon, if on a short term basis, we should absolutely be enabling greater foreign, but I would say trusted competition in this space. So obviously, be very clear in terms of pushing out companies like Huawei, but but welcoming countries like Verizon. Do you mandate
4: then that the Verizon? Uh you fulfill uh coverage across the country or you know uh, on whose terms would they operate in this country
1: well this is always a challenge with respect to any spectrum auction where you ensure that and, and yet we have to be very clear with the terms here in terms of the the auction terms to say where companies and i would say we we do want more companies bidding in this space and competing in this space but you absolutely want to ensure that they are not only building out in the most profitable areas, in the urban areas, but that we are delivering for rural Canadians, too. I mean, my wife's from small town southwestern Ontario outside of Sarnia, and they should—they deserve the same accessibility that I do in the east end of Toronto.
4: Again, with Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, Liberal MP, BJC's York, he sits on the Standing Committee on Industry, Science, and Technology and have been grilling uh, the heads of the telco's primarily the CEO of Rogers over the outage and other attendant concerns when it comes to, you know, their control of the marketplace. You said something earlier I wanted to back up uh, that, you know, he kind of just laughed or dodged around the idea of being an essential service. Uh, wouldn't they satisfy or meet that criteria? A lot of people feel they are now.
1: Yeah, I think unquestionably they are. I mean, this is uh, this is like public, any core public infrastructure like, uh, like our roadways. I mean, this is how we... Get to work in many cases. This is how we connect with our loved ones. Uh, it's a utility like a telephone company in that regard. This is a an essential service for banking and and what came up repeatedly at the committee was a conversation around nine one one because that went down for for certain folks uh, in the course of the outage. So in many different respects, access to the internet is an essential service, which is why it's essentially it is incredibly critical that it be accessible, and, and that's the conversation about ensuring there's network everywhere, but that it also be affordable, because the greatest digital divide, I mentioned in Eastern Toronto, we have access to network, but you know there are, are any number of people in this city, and, and, and frankly, everywhere across this country, who struggle to afford what is, as you say, the, the least affordable wireless service in the world, practically.
4: Right. And especially people on the margins and, uh, you know, fixed incomes and so on and so forth. Uh, that's, you know, really uh, injurious to their bottom line. So how do they how do we address the issue of affordability? I mean, that's been uh, something that's stuck in the craws of Canadians now for the longest time and nothing's being done about it. Where do we go now?
1: Well, in, in a short term basis, you see issues from the government that is about subsidizing existing service. So we see uh, program that started uh, those who already are eligible for the Canada child benefit they would see subsidized uh, access to the internet we now see seniors who are eligible for GIS they similarly are going to have access to subsidized internet you could uh, you could expand that to working age Canadians th- those who are eligible for the Canada workers benefit but fundamentally that, this that 's that's playing at the margins We need substantive policy reform to ensure there 's greater competition and that will bring down prices.
4: Right, because the big telcos always cite geography, you know, and uh, that there is, I guess they don't say as much that it's limited competition, but uh, that they have to develop the infrastructure and build out the networks and so on and so forth. You know, when you mentioned the Roger Shaw uh, takeover, the merger, this is really up to the minister, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's up to his discretion or prerogative?
1: It'll be up to two, two actors, I think. Fundamentally, one we've got the Competition Bureau that is fighting to stop the merger before the uh, before the tribunal, and we'll see how that process plays out. And then, yes, it'll ultimately up to the minister. And I certainly hope the government minister that they that they act in the best interest of Canadians and in the best interest of competition and that they block the merger. That's not just my view; that was a unanimous view from our parliamentary committee. And I would just say, John, when we look at the the building out of the network and that does come at a cost, but and I'm pointing to Australia already. But I mean, what they did is they have this structural separation to say we are going to be, as a in that case, the Australian government responsible for this public the building out of the public infrastructure, and then other companies can compete on the network. And in this case, we are we are very slowly moving toward what's called mobile virtual network operators, where there's existing infrastructure is not used at capacity we could already tomorrow allow much greater competition we already do this with resellers like Tech Savvy in the home broadband space we could certainly do the same thing with respect to mobile and wireless as well
4: yeah it seems like a no-brainer at least uh, from this late person's <laughs> perspective you know but I guess you know uh, the guys in the ivory tower uh, don't necessarily perceive it that way
1: <laughs> or just Well no they've got to they, you know like they make it, for something that is essential service you got rogers that is operating at over a 10 percent profit margin making i think it was over a, a billion and a half in net income last year and their ceo is making 27 million dollars so do they want more competition no they don't <laughs> hmm. no
4: uh understandable and uh so it was right to go after them or at least hold their feet to the fire and this has got to be maintained because at some point you know uh certainly we can't face the uh same challenges we had with the outages now That'll be my exit question. I'm kind of curious if in the event it went out tomorrow, the 911 calls, uh, are they already ready to shift over? I, I think he mentioned it was 60 days they would have, or somebody said they'd have 60-day window by which they could correct that and uh, jump to another uh, service being Bell in that case. Uh, is that still a timeline that's being adhered to, or would it be sooner than that?
1: Uh, I'm not certain, but uh, certainly that was the the area of action that they pointed to repeatedly as something that was going to be solved in the short term. Uh, they also pointed to steps that they were taking in relation to separating the wireline and wireless networks to partition various aspects of their network to make sure that an outage like this to their core network would never happen in the same way again, and they wouldn't see an outage that affected over 10 million Canadians. And But again, when you look at all of these steps, we had the CRTC chair that came and said, look, it's in their interest to take this action. And yeah, it's now in their interest to take this action because there's been this outage and there's been this public media storm and and this frustration with the company. But in the end, it's going to cost them a quarter of a billion dollars to to ultimately make sure something like this doesn't happen again. You'd think they would have already taken those steps given how basic that they are and given they only really cost 10 CEOs. Hmm.
4: And do you think what they're uh, offering by way of uh, remediation or uh, recompense is is adequate? I mean, that they're going to make the Canadian, you know, uh, customer whole and businesses that have lost and so on and so forth. Uh, is well, that something that was discussed? It,
1: it was discussed. They, they certainly aren't going to make everyone whole, I don't think, because some people certainly lost a, a much greater amount than five days of service. Uh, others lost less, potentially, and so will receive additional compensation over above what they lost. But at the end of the day, the minister likened this to an airline incident at one point, I thought that was a really good example because what happens in the airline sector, there's an air passenger bill of rights. And if an an airline cancels a flight for any reason, then there is an obligation to compensate. And there's a specified compensation outlined in the law. And here we've got the goodwill of the company saying, is it going to be two days? Oh no. Now it's going to be five days. What's the, the minimus we can do to make sure that customers don't leave, knowing how limited competition is in this in this country.
4: Hmm. Was there any suggestion of having something akin to uh, the airline passengers' uh, bill of rights?
1: There was. So that'll be, I think, out of this hearing as well. There will be some basic steps around making sure that there are Communication obligations in a crisis like this, there there will be hopefully recommendations around making sure that there's a compensation framework and a regulatory framework related to that compensation along the lines of a Bill of Rights. And then the the bigger structural reforms, which are medium to long term, but, but the most essential around competition will also, I think, loom large in our conversations. Fair
4: enough. Uh, very extensive. Thanks a lot for it, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. Uh, we'll let you go and uh, enjoy some time with your family. And uh, down the road, we'll talk again, I'm sure. But, uh, Sounds keep- good.
1: Yeah, kids are young in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, right. John. I appreciate yeah. it.
4: Okay, I thought it might have been the CEO from Rogers. You were really giving it to him.
3: <laughs> all
1: right, take
4: care. Okay, there you are. Well, when I heard the whining and the crying and the mewling and all the rest, I thought it was a CEO. Anyway, uh, so there you go. Uh, Nathaniel is the Liberal MP, Beaches East York, sits on the Standing Committee on Industry, Science, and Technology. want to talk about classical music it's a study that's just come out i was reading a synopsis of it when it comes to epilepsy seems that there is an impact that classical music specifically the music of mozart plays in reducing the number of seizures and this is well beyond my pay grade to understand how this works so we've enlisted the help of an expert in this regard dr tafik Valiante is a surgical epilepsy uh specialist with the program, a scientist at the Kemble Brain Institute with the University Health Network, and Tafik has joined us here on the Oakley Show this afternoon. Uh, doctor, good to have you with us. As I say, beyond my pay grade, so you got to help me out here. Are you good to
9: do that? Yeah, I'd love to help you out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I uh, I, I was actually... I'm glad I'm on, even for the very reason that I know Arnold Lewis is in town. I didn't know that he was here, so it's amazing. <laughs>
4: yeah, at yeah. the Beaches Jazz Festival, Sunday night, 6.30. Uh, awesome. But let me ask you, first of yeah. all, uh, let's just use as a frame of reference to understand what is epilepsy.
9: Yeah, so great question. So, in fact, it's actually considered the most common serious neurological disorder in the world. Uh, it affects about 1% of the world's population. Uh, so, in fact, it's very likely that you know somebody or somebody you know knows somebody with epilepsy. Uh, unfortunately, you probably wouldn't know because people with epilepsy often try to hide it because of the social stigma that, uh, you know, is afforded to it. It's, it's likened to a brain, a storm in the brain, an electrical storm, where there's abnormal electrical activity that causes a seizure, which could either be very minimal. You may not see anything in the person, but they may lose consciousness. Or what we typically know if you watch on TV uh, the you know the sh- the person falls down and shaking all over so that's mm. epilepsy in a nutshell yes. Yeah.
4: what would typically trigger a seizure then
9: so we we kind of say that they can be they they happen suddenly or unexpectedly so we tend not to think that there's specific triggers but interestingly we do know that things like uh, flashing lights so you'll see sometimes before a movie they'll put on a, a warning um, we know that some types of individuals can listen to a specific piece of music or specific sound, it can cause epilepsy. But interestingly, the things that cause epilepsy most often is actually just circadian rhythm, so the time of day. So seizures are more common at different times of the day.
4: Yeah and specific to that individual so there's no kind of uh, commonality here or a shared reference that uh, everybody with epilepsy shares uh, or, or is there?
9: Yeah, no I mean they're they're so unique. I mean we have sort of classical syndromes um, but each individual's triggers can be very different. We know, for example stress, uh, sleep deprivation that affects your sleep rhythms can very have a very strong impact on people with epilepsy uh, regardless of what type of epilepsy you have.
4: Mm. i know for sure as you mentioned that movies uh there's a sort of a, a prior warning or uh, going to any kind of a, a rock concert and strobes are used uh that's yeah. never a good thing that uh yeah mm-hmm. but here now this is where i was intrigued in reading the synopsis of the study uh there's a positive effect of daily listening to mozart classical yeah. music but mozart specifically uh why would that be
9: yeah so that that's a million dollar question uh so uh as you know, as well as I, uh, music is a mathematical construct. Um, and we think there are specific patterns in specific types of music that cause the brain to be less likely to go into a seizure. And we think the Mozart piece, the K448, is quite unique uh, in that it is amongst the most unpredictable pieces of music rhythmically, at least in the context of Western classical music. Uh, and so we actually, we actually can compute how unpredictable it is mathematically because we cannot get access to the individual notes. And when you compare it to many other composers, except for Joplin, it tends to be the most unpredictable, he tends to be the most unpredictable composer in regards to when you expect notes to happen.
4: Well, you're talking Scott Joplin, the jazz pianist. Yeah,
9: exactly, yeah.
4: Right, so it's a specific piece of Mozart music, the K-448. Yeah. How did this get get discovered? It seems so random.
9: Well, I think this is the beauty of it, because it actually got discovered by a guy who was a physicist, who was very interested. I don't know if you remember way back when, this idea of the Mozart effect on improving people's um, IQ or children, If, if the mother's exposed their child who's in the womb, Mozart to make them smarter. It's this idea that you know listening to classical music makes you smarter, but he came from it from a different point of view, believing that music alters brain activity. Just how music could potentially improve individuals' memory, and he actually did a lot of math before doing the actual study, and then they did actual studies. and There's really good data that shows that listening, exposing people to Mozart, people who are even actively having a seizure, can can stop the seizure. Now, what we added to the literature was a good clinical trial where we actually had a piece of music which you can compare the K4482, which wasn't done in the past. And that's our specific contribution where we used a piece that had the same um, components to it, but it wasn't the piece. And so we compared those two pieces together and we showed that, in fact, and I was actually pretty nihilistic. I didn't think, you know, we're going to find anything, but a very surprising uh, result, which we are now following up on um, from a very kind of specific scientific uh, approach.
4: So you had the uh, control piece, as it were, and uh, yeah, but it had positive results or consequences too. I mean, are we talking about a, I don't know, a potential cure here, or would it just be in certain specific instances? Uh, How do you see the broader implications of uh, what you're finding out?
9: Yeah, I mean, you know, John, that's, that's a great question. So, you know, as a surgeon, uh, you know, I see people who are really good surgical candidates, but also see people who either are not good surgical candidates or who I can't offer something to. And this is where these kinds of things uh, become powerful tools uh, because these things can be adopted by the individual. They have, a, a, you know, a strong sense of control over what they can do and change their behavior. And it can be an adjunct that be added on top of other things like medications uh, or sometimes devices that we implant. And it's very, it's universal, right? Music is something, you know, we, it's, it's its own reward. And so people tend to be very compliant. They, they will sort of do these things. We also think there's another really positive component to it, which is, you know, creating any kind of habit in life is very positive from a mindful perspective, for example. And so building in, you know, routines where you listen to something that may be, you know, uh, relaxing, is a very, you know, positive way of affecting all of us in a positive way and, and as well as people with, with, with epilepsy. So I don't see, see it as a cure per se, but, it's, you know, it's a beautiful thing to add on, to, on top of, you know, other things that we can do to help people with epilepsy.
4: So would you then, uh, say, expose the, the patient to a daily dose of Mozart and what would the duration be?
9: Well, we I would prescribe it just like a drug, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't know what kind of patient you are or if you, you need to take medications, but some people are great and some people are not. So I prescribe it just like I would and say, you know, I think this is beneficial to you. Our study uh, suggested that listening to it at one time, so it's, it's about an eight-minute piece, uh, once a day uh, was enough to have that positive effect. That's so remarkable. Yeah, it's
4: pretty amazing. You're really on the vanguard of uh, doing some very, very interesting, uh, well, diagnostics and uh, potentially, well, obviously it has its positive effect. Yeah. That's an amazing story. And so uh, let's wish you the best in that regard. As you say, you know, 1% of the populace uh, tends to have some form of epilepsy. So uh, it's a godsend. And how timely is that? Really good to have you explain it, especially to uh, someone like me in layman's terms. I appreciate it, doctor.
9: Thanks, John. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All the best.
4: Dr. Tafik Valiente, surgical epilepsy program and and scientist at the Kembrel Brain Institute with the University Health Network. Now you know. Yeah, that was a lot of brain food right there, but uh, a fascinating account. I used to be addicted to naps. Of course, working all those years in the mornings, you try to make up for it in the afternoon. Uh, little did I realize at the time, but now it's been confirmed by a rather extensive study out of the U.K., uh, 360,000 participants, and they'd given information on their napping habits. And comprised, as a result, was a large biomedical database and a research resource that followed them for four years from 2006 to 2010. Conclusion? Conclusion? napping can actually lead to heart disease, hypertension, high blood pressure, even stroke. What's going on? What do we need to know? Let's find out from the expert. Dr. Michael Granner has joined us on the line, clinical psychologist and director of the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Clinic at the Banner University Medical Center in Tucson, Arizona. Dr. Granner, good to have you on the Oprah Show in Toronto. How you doing?
8: Thanks for having me.
4: I appreciate you coming on because uh, this is something that's got me scratching my head. Explain how napping can actually be detrimental to a soul.
8: Yeah, so it's it's a little bit of a nuanced story where the main take-home message from the study is people who were napping more were more likely to develop high blood pressure and, and, and a wide range of other health issues. And So one explanation could be there's something about naps themselves, which might be bad, but what's more likely is that it's not about the nap. So that's some of the that's kind of the good news. That's my interpretation. It's not the nap itself, because we have laboratory data that shows that actually naps are good. They can help you recover, they can help with brain function, they help I mean, you were saying before about about people who have to wake up super early for work sometimes take a nap during the day to, to help with their performance. And that seems to be a good thing. But also in our society, people generally don't nap. And so if you're looking at a correlation in, in, in how often people say they nap, the people who are napping a lot in our society tend to be people who can't make it through the day without a nap. They're people who, in general, might have worse sleep quality at night or not get enough sleep at night. And so that's why they either need a nap during the day or they're nodding off on the couch at night or, or they keep moving or else every time they sit down they fall asleep, they can't make it through a movie. All those sorts of people who can't stay awake that actually i think is the is the uh the risk factor it's not the nap itself it's why are you napping and so if you're not sleeping well at night that can lead to all kinds of health issues sleep is tied to your metabolism your immune system your heart function your brain health all this stuff
4: in other words uh there are more underlying issues and the nap is just a symptom of them
8: yeah that's my guess that's how i would interpret these data knowing what we know about naps it's where it's not the nap itself it's what caused the napping in the first place? Right. And if it's that you're not sleeping well at night, that actually might be a sign that naps might be a sign that something's wrong, that you might need to get a dress.
4: Hmm. Dr. Graner, uh, let's just define a nap, if you will.
8: Sure. Um, in my world, in the sleep research world, a nap means any period where you are asleep or unconscious outside of your normal bed, Time in bed, nighttime sleep window. Some people sleep during the day. Some people sleep at night. But um, so a nap, laying down to rest where you kind of close your eyes, but you stay awake the whole time, not a nap. Um, Nodding off, um, even if you didn't mean to for just a few minutes, that actually is a nap because you were actually physically asleep. Hmm. Um, So that's the definition of a nap as far as I'm concerned.
4: I see. What if you got somnambulism and you can fall asleep anywhere, anytime? Is that detrimental (laughs) to your health?
8: Yeah, probably. I mean, so think of it this way. If you're so sleepy, if your sleep drive is so strong, it's taking any opportunity it can get. Um, two things to think about. One, think about this like diet. Imagine someone so starving, they're, they're without even realizing it, anytime they see a, a morsel on the ground, they're picking it up and putting it into their mouth. This person probably is not eating enough. This person probably has some dietary issues. It, it's a sign that something's wrong. The other thing is, you know, people say that, you know, you can't, you, you can't stay awake indefinitely. Eventually, you'll fall asleep. The problem is you don't want that to happen when you're doing something like driving a car, which happens all the time, um, making a mistake at work. Um, we know that when people aren't getting enough sleep, they try and power through the day, and humans are super adaptable creatures. You know, we do all this stuff. But at the same time, if we go too long without good sleep, the sleep will find us whether we wanted to
4: or not. Hey, listen, Red Bulls build an empire on this. Uh, that's what's... <laughs> so. Dr. Michael Graner's is with us, clinical psychologist and uh, director of the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Clinic at uh, in Tucson, Arizona. You know, uh, I'm looking at this study. They say participants who typically nap during the day were 12% more likely to develop high blood pressure over time and were 24% more likely to have a stroke compared with yeah. people who never napped, but again, uh, your assumption is that this is just a symptom. Uh, they need to make up the sleep, or they're uh, sleep-deprived, and that is telegraphing underlying other underlying issues. Would we say that in terms of the stroke or the hypertension and the high blood pressure?
8: That's my guess, because remember, this is from the UK. They're like us. Where I mean, if this was coming from a culture that took regular siesta maps during the day, like a lot of human cultures have done. I mean, humans figured this out a long time ago, that maps are actually probably good in the middle of the day. Mm. If this were coming from a culture that did that a lot, my guess is that the numbers would not be the same, is my guess. Mm. That would be my prediction. But like us, I mean, think about, I mean, you or anyone who's listening, think about who do you know who takes lots of maps during the day? And think about that person and think, okay, is this the person who's the the peak performer in optimal health, or is this somebody who's got health issues, who's probably maybe snoring too much at night, might have sleep apnea, might have chronic pain, might be a little sleep deprived. My guess is that in our society, the people who are napping more are the ones who have more of these issues, even if naps themselves are, are, are good.
4: Well, they're restorative in the sense that's where, at a cellular level, uh, everything yep. seems to get corrected or at least uh, addressed. It's during sleep yeah. time, isn't it?
8: Yeah, I mean, so so during the day you're walking around, taking in the environment, you're reacting to the environment, you're you're doing all the things of of life during the day. You're taking in experiences, and at night that's when your body sorts through those experiences, manages them, integrates them into your, uh, turns experience. Um, into memory, turns what you do into who you are, not just in terms of your, your memories of the day, but also your immune system's memory of what it was exposed to and your body's memory of, of what it engaged with during the day. That's when muscles get built. That's when all this stuff happens. And if you're not able to give yourself the sleep that your body needs, over time, this is why like a night of, of not sleeping is, is, is probably not going to kill anybody. Uh, and you may not even feel it a lot the first time, But over time, it's just, you know, it just makes the system work a little less efficiently and a little less efficiently over time. That's where you get things like altered metabolism and blood pressure and and problems with circulation. It's these small, subtle changes that just, it's like if you're not changing your car's oil when you're supposed to be, yeah, your car's still going to run, but it's not going to run quite as well. And then something might be more likely to go wrong.
4: Factor myth, uh, you can't necessarily make up for lost sleep.
8: Um, a little bit of both. So the good news is you don't have to make it up hour for hour. So, so when people say, how much sleep do I need to get on the weekend to make up for not getting enough sleep during the week? And what I say, that's kind of like saying, you know, how much salad do I need to eat on the weekend to make up for eating nothing but cheeseburgers and pizza all week? Where, I mean, eating the salad on the weekend is a better idea, but it's not like it's not a one for one. The, the, the answer is actually balance. Yes, it's better to eat healthy on the weekends if you're not eating healthy during the week. But it's actually better to just try and eat a little bit better during the week, even if it's just a little bit, because it'll bring you closer into balance. So the good news is, if you've gone a while without getting good, healthy sleep, it actually probably won't take too long before you'll start feeling the, the benefits. And over time, your body will be back into balance. We're built to, to be able to adapt to this.
4: Something else from the study I'm kind of curious about. Excessive napping could be a sign of dementia. Why is that?
8: Yeah. Well, so this is another, another in, issue where um, not only uh, with dementia, not only does it impact things like your memory, it impacts lots of other brain functions too. And one of the things we're seeing is that people who even have early signs of dementia, their sleep and, and their, their biological rhythms just start getting disrupted because the brain controls these things. And as the brain is starting to to go through some of these changes where it's not working the way it's supposed to, sometimes one of the earliest things you'll see is disrupted sleep. I mean, we all wake up more during the night as we get older. That's kind of normal. But they might get a little more of an extreme version of that. or more, And the, the, the clocks may be off where if their body generally really wants to sleep at night, but maybe they're starting to sleep more during the day. I mean, in, in, in there's data even going back decades showing that, um people with with more severe dementia they can be up and down all over the 24 hours so that could be a sign of of what's going on in the brain that they're not able to regulate it as well
4: finally asking for a friend how does booze affect sleep sure
8: oh yeah yeah so so alcohol probably the most used sleep drug in the world uh but so alcohol's got it's sort of a double edged sword with sleep where yeah, I mean, it probably would surprise you to hear that if you drink alcohol, that makes you fall asleep a little bit faster. Uh, and for some people, it actually makes that that early sleep maybe even a little deeper. But there's two things that happen with alcohol. First of all, while the alcohol's still in your system, it actually suppresses um, some of the some of the the restorative functions of sleep because your body's busy dealing with processing this, this toxin in your body, and so. Um, it's the sleep isn't as restorative but even more so as the alcohol leaves your system you think you know about an hour per drink is sort of the rule of thumb as the alcohol is leaving your system after a couple hours it actually um, ends up waking you up more because the molecules that the the alcohol molecule becomes as your body processes it can turn into something that causes activation and that process of getting rid of the alcohol so Um, People will say, oh, yeah, I drank and I passed out, but then I was up after a few hours and I couldn't get back to sleep. So alcohol might help people fall asleep faster, but it's not a good idea because it makes sleep more shallow and and less restorative. Um, I mean, one or two drinks in the evening probably isn't going to have that much of an effect for most people. But in general, that's why alcohol is not awesome for
4: sleep. There you go. No high balls before bedtime. That's the takeaway. Dr. Michael <laughs> Granner, clinical psychologist, director of the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Clinic at the University of Arizona. Really appreciate all the valuable information going forward. Uh, we'll put it to good use. Thank you. Larnell Lewis, uh, who is an internationally recognized and renowned drummer. He's also a Grammy Award winner. Uh, Juno award winner. What else? Uh, well, well, he's a product of Humber College as well. And uh, in 2014, if I understand correctly, or maybe it was earlier, 2004, he received the Oscar Peterson Award for Outstanding Achievement in Music. That's the highest award given by the institution. So he's got the cred, the bona fides. Good to have you with us on The Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Hey, John. How you doing? Good to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing great. How about you? Uh, so you and the band are playing on Sunday night, right?
10: Yes, we are. 630.
4: Yeah. Where's the venue?
10: We are at Woodbine Park.
4: Nice. Outdoors? Uh, Hopefully the rain will hold off. Uh, There was supposed to be some inclement weather. Are you under a band shell there? How's that going to work?
10: Yeah, we're definitely protected. I would definitely recommend everyone bring uh, the appropriate attire for outdoor hangs during the summer. So Mm. we'll see how that goes.
4: Yeah, What's your sense for it? Have you played the Beaches Jazz Festival before?
10: I have, actually.
4: Yeah. Would you say it's uh, one of the preeminent jazz festivals? I mean, it started a long, long time ago. I guess Lido got it going and went about 30, 35 years ago. Uh, what's your assessment of this versus, say, other jazz festivals or, uh, you know, these kinds of uh, happenings and musical uh, types of uh, congregations, you know, in other parts of the country or North America that you've experienced? It's a biggie, isn't it?
10: it absolutely is i mean it's one of those festivals where you really get to see see the city shine you know Uh, many festivals they're bringing out um, outside artists coming from you know international places which is amazing as well but when you have a festival that not only prioritizes their main stage for having amazing talent there but also provide a space for bands and artists to showcase themselves and make music available during the street festival which is a tradition for my family we're actually going to somehow make it happen tomorrow to hit up the street fest with our two kids but it's it's amazing it's a great time and it's awesome to see everybody doing their thing
4: larnell what's your sense for the jazz scene in toronto i mean montreal has the international festival there uh you know there's not much of a scene you know uh year round but as far as i recall being in montreal back there in the 80s and 90s but you know the festival is a gigantic thing uh what's the festival uh, what's the situation with jazz in the city of toronto right
10: now yeah, jazz in the city again. You know, uh, Toronto's a really special place where so many cultures are coming here, and gathering together, and it's it's an area of Canada where you actually get to see the authentic representation of a lot of different genres of music and cultures, just generally speaking. So that we can all be hanging out and have opportunities to play you know, music in its truest form with people who are experts that are coming to Toronto to, to showcase their talents, it makes for a really lively scene. So, I mean, the venues, of course, some of them got hit really hard during the pandemic, but for those that have been able to stay in last and festivals as well, um, it really gives everyone an opportunity to, to show what they can do. Yeah. The
4: musicianship and jazz is so pure, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, we were talking to Tom from Tom's Place just before the break, and uh, mm. he on you know Tom the, the annual Kensington Market Jazz Festival, and he's got Robbie Botosh in the front window there on his piano. You played with Robbie and Molly Johnson as well, right?
10: Yes, actually, we were just in Halifax for their Jazz Festival this past weekend.
4: Well, <laughs> these guys, when you see it up close and personal, it's a uh, it's an amazing, uh, I think, uh, Specter uh, to witness because. As I said, the musicianship is so pure, unadulterated, and uh, there's a whole lot to recommend it. By the way, uh, i got to ask you, because I was curious, when it comes to drumming, I was saying before you joined us, you know, working the kit, when you see rock acts, uh, what's the hardest idiom, do you think,
10: for a drummer? Ooh, that's a great question. I mean, it depends on what's being challenged. You know, physical challenge, uh, I would definitely have to say rock and metal, sustaining, you know, um uh, high volume for a very long period of time. Um I'd actually put my brother right up there as well. He's playing drums for the weekend, actually. Oh yeah? Huh. Yeah. And so he's on tour. He's been he's been the drummer since um you know that show that happened at Mod Club many years ago. And so uh I know that my brother's like really pumping out a ton of energy. So yeah, I'd say anyone in that kind of really hard hitting, you know, genre. But again, it, it depends on where you are physically, of course. And how long you have to play for because drumming is a sport like it's it's definitely, um, you know, I've been told and and taught by my mentors to treat myself like an athlete because it definitely requires, uh, you know, upkeep of the body to maintain drumming for sure.
4: Mm. Yeah, not like the old days Ginger Baker, you know. I mean, uh they <laughs> you know. What? I mean, the, I don't know how the guy got away with all of that, but uh so does drumming run in your family then? I I read that you started drumming at the age of 2. How does that work?
10: So how that works is, you know, um when you're around music often as often as I am and have been, you pick up whatever you can and my parents made sure instruments were accessible to us. Um, Pots and pans were my start. My dad being a musical director at the church, he let me sit on his lap while I played the drums on top and he played the pedals. But going before that, actually, musicals and runs in my family, as far as I know, since my great grandfather. Hmm. And so how do you gravitate towards
4: jazz, whereas your brother uh, is more into uh, the rock funk vein, I guess? And hip-hop
10: yeah yeah that's a great question so really i mean we we came under a lot of the same teachings uh growing up under my dad and you know other mentors in the scene whether it was church or on the on the scene you know we were subbing and playing some of the same gigs in certain situations but um you know personalities i really think is what takes over and so for him he's such a superstar and and loves to rock out and i love to rock out too but my voice i think shines best um in a variety of styles that are connected to jazz like a little closer to jazz Hmm. you know in
4: the old days in rock it wasn't uh really that uncommon to see the drummer uh do a 20 minute solo there was a lot of that going on i don't know so much (laughs) these days but uh, do you still uh when you're playing in the jazz idiom do you do a lot of soloing do you drive the band uh i mean how does that work the dynamic between the different
10: instruments yeah, I mean, I definitely, any situation I'm in, I will drive as much as is um, possible or as needed for the music. Um, in fact, playing for the Canadian Walk of Fame last night, uh, you know, it's a situation where you're playing for the tenors, and you're playing for, you know, Thelma Houston, and you're playing for Deborah Cox, and you're playing for, you know, all these different artists. And the flow of the music definitely hinges upon how well the drummer can keep the band settled with the tempo and dynamics and I really liken it to the job of a of a sheepdog really you know the shepherd says this is where we got to go and the sheepdog is kind of helping to you know keep things uh together and guide the the herd so
4: anyone's style in particular that you were influenced by I mean uh, there are so many different kinds you know over the over the years as well jazz, rock, whatever, uh, the different genres, uh, anybody in particular that you would emulate or were influenced by?
10: Absolutely. Um, I have like a whole host of, of drummers that I've actually had the opportunity to meet, um, and some I haven't had the opportunity to meet, but I would definitely say Brian Blade in the jazz uh, scene is one major one for me. Terry Lynn Carrington is another one, which who my dad would allow me to watch Segments of the Arsenio Hall show, which is when she was playing drums at that time, hmm. and um, you know Dennis Chambers is another major influence, Dave Weckl, and Calvin Rogers as well. So yeah, those are my main you know top five influences for expression, sound, um, intensity, range, and 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 of course some local heroes as well. Mark Kelso really took his time with me um, while I was at Humber College, and 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 just help me to get connected better to the city by by understanding a lot of different genres
4: yeah it's a remarkable accomplishment uh coming out of humber internationally recognized now uh part of the beaches jazz festival with your own band Larnell Lewis, the Larnell Lewis band playing on Sunday night, 630, uh, Woodbine Beach. By the way, I did ask earlier, I, I didn't get to ask you, but I was mentioning aloud. Did you ever see the movie Whiplash? I mean, <laughs> did that give you a little bit of a fright, uh, based on, you know, the guy that was, uh, the teacher here, the instructor? I mean, that was just a sadistic type of person dealing with, uh, a young student. Uh, any experiences along those lines? Oh my
10: gosh the ptsd but what i will say is that um <laughs> what i will say is you know I, you know passionate people you know they they have a focus in mind and sometimes they just don't know and understand how to voice those passions and 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 get those lessons across and so they do them the best way they can but that was definitely an extreme case and i think you know it was to push a particular narrative um you know that people could understand if you haven't been in that seat of trying to learn or teach or explain or understand music i think the nuance gets lost for a lot of people that are not connected to that lifestyle but um there's some things that are accurate some things that weren't you know but uh yeah it was pretty intense you know Mm. and actually if i could quickly say um for the performance the band is going to be awesome and i also want to highlight joy laps lewis who's going to be playing steel pan so we are sharing we've been touring across canada and um, it'll be my music and also her music as well for this performance at the beaches.
4: It's wonderful. Sounds like a great night in the offing. Uh, hopefully the weather complies. Again, 630, get there early. Larnell Lewis with his band playing Sunday night at the beaches jazz festival, Woodbine Beach. Really a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I wish you continu- continued success and a great night Sunday.
10: Thank you very much. Great to be on the show. All the best. Again, Larnell Lewis.
7: Okay, boys and girls, that's a wrap for this episode of the Oakley Podcast. Listen to the show live Monday to Friday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Just turn the AM dial to 640 or listen to us from anywhere at
6: 640toronto.com.